Welcome to the Future of Stuff podcast, conversations on the technological and social transformation of material culture, presented by Materium. I'm your host, Garrison Breckenridge. All music is courtesy of Zoe Keaton. On this episode, I'm joined by Helen Burroughs, a human rights lawyer turned activist. In recent years, she's focused on combating slavery and the supply chains which give us the clothes on our backs, the phones in our pockets, and so much more. We discuss the scale of this dark facet of material culture, how it flourished with trade globalization, how governments have failed to do anything about it, and how a combination of technological innovation and social action between corporations and consumers can create a better path forward. There were some technical difficulties during recording, so please forgive the audio quality. Nevertheless, I hope this conversation illuminates your understanding of the real cost of our stuff and how we can make it better for everyone. All right, let's just get into it. Um, Cool. Would you like to uh, introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. My name's Helen Burrows. I'm a lawyer by training. But for the past 20 years, I've worked in legal and judicial reform with around 50 countries around the world on anything from access to justice to anti-corruption, human rights to human trafficking. In the last five or so years, I deepened my interest and work in the anti-slavery field, considering the work I've done on that and related areas for a lot of years in a lot of countries, I've seen how completely ineffective governments have been doing anything to eliminate this, currently impacting around 40 million people around the world, and, and realized that it's, it's companies and consumers that are the answer to this issue, I think, and that we can see more traction in less time by focusing in that direction rather than on relying on governments to get the law and its enforcement right. So um, my interest has been in how do we increase the opacity uh, or decrease rather the opacity of supply chains and make them more transparent so we know where our stuff comes from, how it's made and what harm or not it may have done along the way to our doorstep anti-slavery work on the supply chain front is something I've been aware of for a few years now. And you hear a bunch of stories, you, you hear a bunch of pilot programs from you know, basically every supply chain company under the sun, but you never really see any sort of uh, huge fundamental shift in how people do things. Before we get into the weeds, I, I want to relay something and something I uh, would suggest listeners do is there's a website called slaveryfootprint.org and it has you know information on you know the subject in terms of the scope of it. And it also has a survey that you can take uh, and it'll ask you about your diet and the overall kind of composition of your household and how many cars do you have, you know, how many bedrooms or home office, your wardrobe composition like whether or not you have leather shoes electronics and it gives you a projection uh, of roughly you know the number of slaves that are working for you uh, to secure your lifestyle when i took the survey it projected 26 instantly in my head I, i imagined what about like my neighbors and then everyone else in the town and then in the state, 
in the country. And then as I imagine that number, just like just rocketing up, it is quite uh, striking. Something I planned on talking about like later in the conversation, but I like that you mentioned it right off the bat, which was that you lost hope. Unfortunately, that government would enact the necessary policy to get more transparency out of the corporate supply chain, have it be a mandated thing, an industrial standard, and that you think it's going to come down to uh, consumers and kind of like awareness and like kind of like a, you know, social movement from the consumer side. Um, I think that kind of difference between corporate action and action of people as a whole is, is a really interesting thing because it's very different and it's very difficult. There are uh, in instances of this happening in the past very effectively. There's a concept I like called Satyagraha, mm -hmm. uh, which was Gandhi's driving philosophy in terms of how he conducted his social movements. And it uh, was a direct influence on you know, civil rights movement with you know, Martin Luther mm -hmm. King uh, and also with uh, Nelson Mandela fighting in South Africa. And what Satyagraha means is holding firmly to truth or truth uh -huh. it's an insistence on truth. You show mm -hmm. the institutions of power, like what they're actually doing to people. Exactly. And, and then it's on them. You know this without a doubt. It's irrefutable. <laughs> what are you going to do? And it, it could be remarkably effective. So I, I wonder, do you think like that would be possible now? Like that kind of very thorough systemic change? I think we're sitting on the cusp of it. And I don't know whether that's a kind of wimp sensor, but I, I don't think we're there yet. I think that the movements that you've mentioned, this is a little bit different because it's often been the oppressed rising up and not taking any shit anymore. Whereas slavery by its nature is hidden. Slaves cannot get out in the streets and voice their um, concern about the status quo and demand emancipation. That's not how the mechanics of this industry functions. So we're not looking at the same type of movement, but the same type of energy is absolutely required. The same type of commitment is required because obviously it wasn't just Martin Luther King and his people. The movement was massive and, and included people from everywhere of every color. And um, so it, it's not just that, but the nucleus of those movements is different to the nucleus of this movement. And I don't think consumers, society are there enough in enough numbers yet to produce any kind of tipping point to transformation. So I think it's also going to take the convergence of industry saying, we don't want to do any harm. We're trying our best not to, but we actually don't know the harm that we're doing and we don't know a better way of doing business. Holding on to the truth, holding firm to the truth, is what we want to do is provide that truth because at the moment the, the truth is, you know, a little bit colored in here and there, but there's plenty of gaps that we don't know. So it's the democratization of truth, actually, to be able to see it on a broader scale so companies can say, we're not done with that. We want to be sustainable environmentally and as regards to social labor standards. And we're not okay with this. So we're going to change how we operate. But being upfront about that um, and consumers saying, now I know where my product comes from and how it's made at every point along the way, 
I can now make an informed choice about whether or not I want to buy that thing. So I, I think the, the movement is coming, but we have to preempt the movement by providing the, the foundations for this democratization of knowledge and therefore truth to put more fuel underneath the energy that exists. But I mean, we have seen different movements. A vegan movement, for example, is fundamentally different to civil rights movement, for example. That's one, that's, that's done great things. So it, it's not like it's the only type of movement that can succeed, absolutely, but it depends a lot on the, the, the commitment and the energy of the people at the nucleus. So yeah, I think it, it, we're not there yet. We're on the cusp of it. On this aspect of kind of putting it on the otis of industry to adopt these standards and to really, really put an effort in, into doing this you're interested in blockchain technology in the application of this would you care to go into that in more detail ah uh-huh, sure i, I think the, the benefits of blockchain technology offer themselves in a couple of different realms in this space one is i think philosophically Again, the, the sort of democratization of, of information, access to it, and the, the, the concept of the disintermediation of, of information and, and the breaking down of silos, because that's been a huge problem across the board. But, it, you know, as it relates to slavery, you know, the, the, the company will keep its information about its supply chain and what it may, might have found in terms of labor abuses. They'll keep that really secret, of course. And, and then this government department keeps its information secret and the NGOs don't have outlets to communicate what they know and, and, and workers themselves don't have outlets to communicate. So by, by breaking down all of those kinds of barriers, and I'm not talking about blockchain technology itself, but the, the philosophy behind, you know, removing silos is, is something that is, is uniquely innovative about the approach. And in terms of the technology itself, the immutability of information. So obviously, if you put junk in, you get junk out, like with always. And and so it's a case of ensuring that we have adequately robust sources of triangulated, checked, verifiable data that goes in. Um, And as long as that process can be assured, then what then ends up on the blockchain cannot be changed, obviously. And that's a radical departure from what we've ever been able to do before in terms of the the collection and presentation of information about this side of how things work. Yeah, in some sense, it's a a clever hack for truth, or I guess consensus is a better word. It's not like capital T truth in this sense. But one thing that I've uh, noticed being active in the space for you know about four years now is there's been so many supply chain blockchain projects so many of them entire consortiums have been formed and they do these track and trace uh, exactly. you know, pilot programs but they they don't go anywhere no they don't because track and trace is so two-dimensional it just tells you that this this flask that I'm holding that nobody can see um, you know where it originated and then it was t- tagged and then we can trace it as it travels all over the world until it ends up being recycled I hope it doesn't tell me anything about the labor conditions of the people who manufactured the aluminium it doesn't tell me where the paint was made and who painted it and how noxious it may be it doesn't tell me where the plastic came from but it doesn't tell us anything that we need to know 
about this product in order to make ethical choices about whether I want to buy it. And some, some of the writing I've been doing for Materium, I describe it as a zero history problem. Um, <laughs> this concept of zero history in our stuff is really problematic because like you said we don't really know where it comes from we don't know about the labor conditions that brought it into the world and it's just kind of part of this larger systemic problem of managing production and consumption in society like that cycle is so bloated and it's just a ever hungry machine that keeps churning exactly it wasn't that long ago that there were four seasons in the fashion year now there's 52 so, you know, just the exponential increase of what we're told we have to buy. And I'm just using fashion as one example of how it is across the board. We have to have this gadget or we have to have that or this will make our lives easier, quicker, faster, whatever. And we get caught up in it, certainly. It's really in our faces. It's a gluttonous consumer, a level of consumerism that we don't even realize. That's what we're a party to or fueling. We're ripped off too. There's lots of products out there that will have lovely green labels on them and tell us that um, their cotton is organic, but it doesn't tell us whether that cotton was picked by child slaves in Kazakhstan. <laughs> the cotton's organic, so that's all right. Or it, it might say that um, this tuna was caught without a net or these prawns were sustainably farmed, but it doesn't tell you that the guys on the boat doing the fishing have been on vessels for the last 25 years, passed on the high sea from boat to boat, completely enslaved. And their only chance of escape is to get sick and die and be thrown overboard. It doesn't tell you anything like that. So as consumers, we don't even know what we need to know because we're not being told. We're being told the cotton's organic. There were no nets involved in this fishing. And we think, done deal, that's it. And we've been greenwashed and whitewashed and we don't look underneath the curtain we're not interested in looking underneath the hood enough to know more to find out more but, but I don't really put the fault of that at the feet of consumers necessarily because we do rely on um, authorities including governments to to do the right thing even in the UK where arguably they've got one of the strongest pieces of anti-slavery legislation in the world the level of dilution that was required in order to get that piece of law over the the line meant that all companies have to do is pop the hood have a quick look to see if anything looks out of place and if it is then that's fine there's no obligation to delve right down to the top or up to the top of your supply chain and tell us exactly what's going on in, in micro detail there's nothing like that so you know we rely on government to tell us what the standard is and what the requirements ought to be and what we need to know, but they're not doing that job because of the various divergent pressures on them to do, <laughs> that pull them in a different direction. And then we get the sort of green whitewashing layered on top of that inside this sort of grotesquely huge consumerist society that we are. And it's just a recipe for continued disaster. <laughs> and, and you know, the, the culpability here is multidimensional. Like at a fundamental level, there's also a part of it where our desire, like our capacity for desire, what we desire, our desire as a function is being kind of manipulated. Uh -huh. uh, but there's a self-awareness on corporations that have multi-million dollar, you know, marketing budgets to sell us things or using algorithms to get us to market things to ourselves in a weird feedback loop. But the idea that 
oh, people want things that are green. They want things that are sustainably sourced. Uh, let's yeah. give it to them, even though there's been plenty of cases where that was actually completely false. It's a fancy packaging that looks organic and yes. uh, earthy, but there's yeah. still, in fact, horrible yeah. stuff happening. Often they don't know. I remember having a conversation with the person who was at the time, the head of sustainability at McDonald's. And of 80,000 supply chains that they had to keep an eye on, they said that their, their due diligence was really comprehensive and robust. And in the last 12 months, they had found one case of labor exploitation among 80,000 supply chains across multiple countries. You know, if you only find one case of exploitation in that many supply chains in loads of countries, your system doesn't work. That's the only explanation. So... Companies often don't know, and companies don't have access at the moment to the, the capabilities that they need to get right down there in supply chains. If you think of mobile phone, how many components are in a mobile phone? Trying to trace all of those diffuse supply chains around to their source, and then you get to the cobalt, and you're like, we got as far as the smelter. And then we were screwed. We didn't know where it came from. There's lots of really logistical, legitimate, as well as illegitimate reasons why companies don't actually know. But instead of fessing up to that and saying, we've got gaps here in our knowledge, they just stick a label on and say, our cotton's organic. And we go, oh, great, organic cotton. I can sleep at night now. I bought that organic cotton and I didn't buy that rubbish pesticide-laden one. Or 10% of the profit from this company go to help women rescued from um, trafficking and prostitution in India. Great, I can sleep well. We rely on that one box tick, whatever they, their marketing people choose that box to be, and think it's the whole story. So, But it's, again, it's, it's we don't know what we don't know. And, and it's getting it out there, what we do need to know about these products. And in the environmental space, that's incredibly complicated because it vastly depends on the product. And, you know, it's processes. I mean, consumables in the anti-slavery space are a little easier in some respects, given the standards, uh, you know, sort of universal of how you should treat people who work for you. And, and, you know, what the international law says about all of that, but not easy in terms of accessing the information because this is a $200 billion plus a year industry. There's a lot invested in the status quo and it will take a lot to deconstruct all of that. So there's a lot invested in making sure that people don't know what actually happens in various parts of various supply chains because it is terrible so it's not an easy thing to try and deal with we need to start and lots of projects as you said with the track and trace work there's there's just lots of anti-slavery and environmental protection work going on globally as of course we all know but what's missing is that straight line truth that complete knowledge or where there isn't complete knowledge the, the, the courage to say these are our gaps and who, who can fill them for us, we'd like to know. And then whatever the result is, we'll work with it and we'll, we'll do what we can to make it better. And, you know, with, with that level of commitment and consumers behind them, then that's what could produce this change. Yeah, absolutely. I also wonder, corporations, you know, operate under certain incentives, profits or what they optimize for. So I wonder if there's a way 
to almost like Trojan horse, this insistence on truth at the systemic level uh, by, you know, saying like, you'll have all these incredible efficiency gains that it'll actually be more valuable for you. For who to, to lead. So, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a number of ways that this is financially and, and at, a, at a level of values attractive to companies. Obviously, we're not going to go and start by trying to twist the arms of companies. You'd start with the companies that are really making, have made great inroads and demonstrated great levels of investment and commitment. You'd start there because they're the ones that want to do the right thing. But yeah, there's, there's massive efficiencies to be gained. Look at all of the money that's wasted in supply chains because time wasted lags. So much goes wrong in the supply chain that could be massively tightened up to create huge time and cost efficiencies. Um, as well as anything else. And also the other side of it, the flip side of it is that, what is it, about 98% of a company's value is its reputation. And when companies like Zara get called out because the machinists have sewn notes into the, the hems of coats, say, pockets of coats saying, please help us, we haven't been paid. That wipes a lot off the slate <laughs> in terms of that company's value. And a lot of companies get caught out. Obviously, there's a risk analysis to be done about whether you... <laughs> allow that risk to be on the table. That has the capacity to wipe a lot of value off a company. So for companies wanting to manage that risk, manage their risk, and also increase cost and time efficiencies in how they do business, then absolutely having a comprehensive line of sight down their supply chain is a very smart thing to do. Uh, absolutely. This podcast is you know, presented by Materium. So, you know, so listeners who may not be aware of Materium, would probably be curious as to how we approach this kind of challenge. So one of the kind of core inventions within the project is the asset passport. So just as you know, people have passports in order to travel freely internationally and cross borders, it's a digital identity for an object instead. So this identity, this passport has very detailed information about the object, where it came from, what it is weight is it vaulted somewhere any other kind of manufacturing or production data um, that's necessary to have a very firm grasp identifying this item and also legal guarantees baked in uh, so that there's uh, access to uh, recourse if there's like a commercial fallout um, you know there's arbitration and dispute resolution and stuff like that all baked into uh, an object that's attached to this global marketplace by default. So we could have these digital identities created with supply chains at the point of production. So as soon as something is built, before it, it's before it goes into the vast machinery of uh, commerce, a provenance making sure that there's no zero history there. Like from the raw material to the finished product, there's this history that you can follow. So in, in a way, uh, Vinay described it recently in a way that I like. He described it as Satyagraha as a service. You're seeing the truth of the objects that you produce as a company or that you consume or buy as a consumer. There was a book that I, I didn't, I wasn't able to read the whole thing before the call called uh, Blood and Earth. Ah, yeah. And, Kevin Bells. Yeah. And... He gives a really kind of uh, clear description of him kind of seeing this thing, actually going to the source of like where they're like mining minerals for 
yeah that end up going yeah. in cell phones and seeing it in person and mm -hmm. it's just there <laughs> these operations mm -hmm. are just simply operating in just yeah. parts of the world as if there's no without a care in the world and but the one thing he said that i think is the key to this is that once you know this once you're aware of this you can't forget it you can't ignore mm -hmm. it or at least you can daydream all you want but once the facts are presented to you, you you have to do something and i think that idea that if people knew without a doubt uh that that there are literally millions of slaves existing in the world today we think of slavery as a, a bygone era like this dark past but it's happening in either similar or different ways it's kind of obscured you know, in the giant machinery of trade. And I think one of the challenges with kind of driving awareness of this and trying to get uh, traction on the social front is, yeah. you know, with social media and the way like the media landscape is nowadays, we're just constantly bombarded with information. You know, everything is happening all at once. B being connected as we are is both a beautiful and terrifying thing, <laughs> depending on how that manifests. So do you think there's a concern of effectively reaching the necessary number of people, social awareness to the extent that actual change could be implemented? I don't think accessing people will be the problem. It'll be the approach that needs to be different from any approach that's been used before. Because the approach that we often see is the picture of poverty, the physical child, woman, in a distressing situation. And that's meant to tug on our heartstrings adequately for us to take action. All it does is make us feel bad and disconnects us because we don't know that person is one of 40 million, which is too big for us to contemplate in terms of how can I make a difference to 40 million people? We have to connect it human to human and have it resonate between your life and their life, my life and their life. We have to make the connection. Also, most people don't know that 80% of the stuff they buy has been touched somewhere along the line by a slave, at least one. They don't know that. But even if they did know that, they would. we would still say, maybe this one was the 20% that wasn't touched by a slave and I can still sleep at night. So we're so disconnected from the reality, but it happens to someone else, somewhere else, that I can't influence because it's too far, too disconnected from my reality and just too big. We get overwhelmed and we disconnect. So the approach must be different in order to engage people because I think we now have the platforms where we can reach people and with the right message, we can do it very quickly and I think more effectively than before. Yeah, it will certainly be a challenge. You're dealing with complexity on the business front, the technology side of things, the social dynamics. It's a genuine, you know, kind of mission and you know, it has to mm -hmm. be kind of compelled by a desire to see things become better for people and just reducing suffering in the world. That has to be the North Star. It, it does. It does. And I, th and I think that the vast majority of people are not bad. They don't want to do harm. And I believe that many businesses that do harm didn't mean the exigencies of businesses and the logistics of operation forced them down a road 
maybe they, obviously they agreed to it, but maybe they didn't set out. I don't believe that people set out to do harm. So I do believe that there's enough of us, both as consumers and businesses that do want to do the right thing. And with the right tools in our hands and the right information in our hands, we can. And now we have the capacity to be able to provide that. But I don't pretend that it's a quick fix. This is generational attitudinal change that is required. But I do believe that we're very close to having enough people on board as consumers and businesses to be able to start making a dent. And I think showing people what's possible is really important, even as design artifacts. Being able to show people like, here's what this would be like in practice. It's really difficult for people to change how they do things, how they operate in their daily lives. But one example that Vinay gives, the concept of automated morality. What if you could configure through some mobile app, you have it integrated with your payments, your, your payment card or whatever it is, make it to where it's able to detect if there's lack of transparency or even just actual documented evidence of bad labor conditions or um, uh -huh. uh, slavery. And it, it tells you, it notifies you before you make the purchase. Yeah, um, exactly. We have the capacity now to predict when slavery may be more likely to occur. Imagine, for example, um, as a few years ago happened with um, the conflict in Syria, mass migration into certain parts of Turkey, that was very auditable. We already knew, for example, that there was some dodgy factories close to the border in Turkey. You've got desperate people fleeing across the border, need to earn money, bang. I know that's a very simplistic example, but still the fact remains that you can use the knowledge we have to predict when things are going to go south, when things are going to go wrong, and when things could result in human or environmental harm. And we can begin to do that. So people could be warned, like you say, um, when something actually happens or when the sort of geopolitical, socioeconomic indicators start showing us red flags. But, you know, we can also automate morality by building in buttons into our Amazon whatever searches saying, do you want slave free? Tick. Do you, do you want um, environmental harm free? Tick. And then you get your products filtered by those things as well. So there's definitely ways of making it super easy for us as consumers to, to make the right choices. But obviously then what sits beneath that needs to be robust and comprehensive. It can't be that the cotton was organic, but we know nothing about the 99% other parts of that product. So we have to be really... Um, on point and about all of everything that sits underneath the, the water of that iceberg. And, and that integration has a, a very uh, clever side effect. If you did this and it prevented people, like people's uh, willingness to purchase from them because of the obscurity or whatnot, at that point, it's like, okay, well then prove it. Yeah. Uh -huh. Be open yeah. and prove it. And then you'll be one of the most, you know, more, a more popular brand. Exactly. And I think a lot of the approaches that have been taken to date have been finger pointing at companies going, you're bad, like Zara, when it all came out about notes sewn into coat pockets, you're bad, you're a terrible company. And so companies have felt backed into a corner, not wanting to be forthcoming with information that they have about their supply chains because they're scared of being ridiculed. And, you know, I totally understand that. Whereas if we come from the perspective of 
we have we don't know exactly what's going on but we want to find out and when we do find out we want to deal with it so we're going to just be upfront and open and that's real transformation of culture that is required in order for businesses to feel confident to do that to air their dirty laundry there's a consumer literacy there like just knowing and understanding things everything is so complex these days like no one understands how the global financial system works (laughs) it's incredibly important it drives how resources are allocated around the planet but not even the top top professionals in global finance could tell you how exactly does it work? Because there's so much automation. There's so many automated tooling from like high frequency trading systems and such where like it's mm-hmm. all these processes that are just happening you mm-hmm. know, often autonomously and that's happening further. So the thing we need to do is to automate this insistence on truth and sustainability so that these kind of darker you know, aspects of supply chains that exist now isn't just automated and further kind of optimized to kind of yeah the you know flow of goods as it is yeah yeah I, th- I think that underneath all of this is a fundamental restructure of global business actually <laughs> and 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 a, a, a ceasing of our current approach which is let's just go and find that from a country a, a country where we can get cheaper labor that whole approach that is adopted pretty much universally we have to shift that culture we have to alter that culture that approach because otherwise we are going to go and seek out and exploit the most vulnerable and and with already existing socioeconomic pressure you know in whatever context those people live in if you've got added international commercial pressure on that it becomes unavoidable it's the culture of how we do business internationally that also needs to be considered but that's you know, that's the bigger picture. Oh yeah, and there's definitely a connection between resilience, economic resilience and uh, scale of commerce. Like globalization, yeah. a few decades, like rapidly scaled commerce around the world. But because of that, because it had to kind of fracture and spread into, you know, this complicated matrix of distributors and manufacturers, yeah. it became yeah. less centralized within, you know, a certain region or like a state uh, in the United States, for example, it became this global machine and it's very easy for things to slip through the cracks. Exactly. And that's the problem is the complexity. It's just in so many cases, seemingly impossible to uncover. Global trade liberalization was marketed to us as a really great thing for countries to make friends and be closer. You know, we, we never were told about, well, this is the flip side of that, that we're going to go to China or where we can get labor for X or India or this country in Africa, where labor is less, so we're going to make them work really hard for not very much money so we can bring you cheap stuff. We were given the good news story about global trade deals or international trade deals and the like. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So even if you've got one corruptible, failing, dodgy state involved. That is the only opportunity that is required for, you know, to sour and and taint that whole supply chain. And with the number of countries that we go to and use um, for the production cycle of various consumables, 
every single least developed country in the world is being flogged. I think you covered quite a bit. Is there anything in particular that you'd uh, want to cover? Oh, would you like to inform listeners what you're working on now? With Materium? Yeah. So I am working with Materium to develop the approach that we will take to this because what we want to do is add rails of data onto asset passports to complement the information that's currently provided in it to inform people about the environmental and social provenance of particular products or particular articles. So we're developing the the standards, the approach, how we will screen claims and test claims. Um, So we're not going to be part of the greenwashing movement. So we can certainly distinguish ourselves from that and offer something that really is different and, and, and much better than has been before. What we need the technology to do for us in order to operationalize that. This is definitely one of the uh, better undertakings that I think, you know, a- a- anyone can be doing now. It's a difficult subject to talk about, but I'm optimistic about the future. Good. <laughs> so am I. I think we have to be, otherwise the reality yeah. becomes a bit low. But yeah, yeah, it's good to be optimistic. I think we have reason to be optimistic.